Our next speaker is Simon Levinas. Simon spent quite a few years as a registrar and trainee in neurosurgery, but a few years ago gave it away for the less stressful slash angry slash sleep deprived life of a full-time surgical assistant, which means he still helps neurosurgeons operate, but now has time to enjoy life, which is great. Apart from assisting, he travels as much as he can, attends electronic music festivals, runs long distances, and hangs out with his wife and dogs. He also has a PhD in neuroscience. He'd like you to know his favorite Game of Thrones character is Ramsay Bolton. I actually don't know what that means. Simon Levinas, come on down. Thanks. So controversial. So the very morally ambiguous story of Walter Freeman is one of the greatest controversies in psychiatric, if not medical, history. And it's the story of a man whose work is now remembered as a byword for medical barbarism. His work was famously immortalised in Ken Kesey's novel and later the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where Jack Nicholson's character is depicted as suffering a fate worse than death. I definitely wouldn't call him a hero, but I don't really think he deserves his villainous reputation as some kind of malevolent crackpot with an ice pick in his hands. So, not quite the Ramsay Bolton of psychiatry then. More like the Stannis Baratheon. So convinced of the righteousness of his cause that he got carried away and did a few unsavory things along the way. When I began researching this story, I was fully prepared to encounter a monster. But the more I read about Freeman, the more sympathetic I became to his crusade. Part of the problem, you see, is trying to understand the burden of psychiatric disease as it was in 1954, when the first antipsychotic drugs became available. Before there was modern drug therapy, the burden of mental health was absolutely staggering, and it's hard to understand to our modern sensibilities. In 1937, there are an estimated 400,000 patients in psychiatric institutions in the United States alone. That's half of the total hospital beds in the country, and it wasn't unheard of for patients to spend 30, 40, or even 50 years of their lives institutionalized. And let me tell you, these asylums were not pleasant places. At best, they were warehouses for people that society wanted to forget. Warehouses full of despair and suffering. And at worst, well, let's just say they were terrible. They were like something out of a horror movie. There really just were no treatments for people with mental illness. And after the traumas of World War II, with many of the veterans suffering from what we would now recognize as PTSD, things only got worse. Think of all the wasted lives and all that could have been achieved by those people languishing without treatment. Walter Freeman wanted to do something. He knew there was no hope of cure, but if he could alleviate at least some of the suffering and get at least some of the patients out of the asylums and back into society, wasn't that worth it? Psychosurgery, as we call the neurosurgical treatment of psychiatric disease, potentially has a history older than history itself, with 5,000-year-old Stone Age skeletons demonstrating evidence of the drilling of round holes in the skull potentially for the release of evil spirits that were causing madness. But the story of frontal lobotomy, which is a disconnection or a removal of the frontal lobes of the brain, really begins with the Portuguese neurologist Egas Monitz, who performed his first lobotomy in 1936. In the absence of any other worthwhile treatments for the chronically and severely mentally ill, Monitz was eventually awarded the 1949 Nobel Prize for Medicine for frontal lobotomies. Monitz almost deserves his own Labora story. He was also independently nominated for the Nobel Prize a second time for his invention of cerebral angiography, which to this day remains the gold standard investigation and treatment method for many diseases of the blood vessels of the brain. 
Not only was he a renowned neurologist, he was also for a time the foreign minister of Portugal and was the Portuguese signatory on the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah. He survived an assassination attempt from a former non-lobotomy patient and for a time he even appeared on the Portuguese paper money. But let's back up again. What is a frontal lobe and what does it have to do with mental illness? And why was everyone so keen to castrate the frontal lobe, as Ken Kesey so memorably put it? For much of human history, the function of the human brain had been an entire mystery. And indeed, it still largely is a mystery how this 1,400-gram lump of goop, roughly the color and consistency of a creme caramel, can create and contain an entire personality. The frontal lobe, which sits just above your eyes in the front of your brain, and particularly the prefrontal cortex, is involved in executive function. So that means things like planning complex behaviors, decision-making, personality, and moderating your social behavior. If your frontal lobe doesn't function like it should, whether from dementia, trauma, drugs, or just plain bad genes, you become a bit uninhibited. Now, we all know these people. They're the ones with no filter. They're the ones who say and do the things that you might be thinking of saying and doing, but you don't, because, you know, we live in a society, right? Doctors call these people Collingwood supporters. <laughs> so if you damage the frontal lobes even further, then you become unmotivated, and you'll lose the ability to plan even the simplest of tasks. You'll become docile, and you'll enter a state of surgically induced childhood. If damaged even further, you'll end up like Jack Nicholson's character. Now, if you'd previously been plagued by crippling depression or anxiety, being a little bit uninhibited might even be considered an improvement. The doubts, anxieties, or even the hallucinations, they might still be there, but you just don't really care anymore. Similarly, in those people who were previously violently psychotic and were locked in a padded room in an asylum for 30 years, perhaps being a docile child who could actually leave the asylum and even have the simplest of jobs, well, maybe it wasn't that bad. The aim of frontal lobotomy was to try and find that sweet spot between anxious depression or violent psychosis before the operation and uninhibited behavior or comatose after the operation. So finally, enter Walter Jackson Freeman II. He was born in 1895 and he was the grandson of Williams Keene, who was a distinguished surgeon in the US Civil War and the first American surgeon to successfully remove a brain tumor and have the patient live. Freeman was the first practicing neurologist in Washington, DC, and he single-handedly wrote the first textbook on neuropathology. He also pursued some of the earliest research into multiple sclerosis, and he championed the rights of African-American doctors to practice. But he increasingly felt himself drawn to the immense crisis in mental health. Freeman was fascinated by the potential of lobotomy, and he partnered up with a neurosurgeon by the name of James Watts, and they started performing lobotomies together in 1936. Their first patient was a 63-year-old housewife with severe anxiety and depression. The result, as Freeman noted, was spectacular. Her symptoms were relieved, and she returned home to live a happy life and died five years later from unrelated causes. Freeman and Watts performed over 200 of these procedures in the next six years, and it's estimated that before 1954, a total of over 18,000 people underwent frontal lobotomy in the United States alone. Freeman and Watts' most famous, or infamous, patient 
was Rosemary Kennedy, who was the oldest sister of future president JFK. She'd suffered from oxygen deprivation at birth, had an intellectual disability, and with her father's consent, she underwent a lobotomy at age 23 in 1941 for behavioral issues. The procedure was a horrible failure, and Rosemary became the invisible Kennedy who was hidden from public view in nursing homes for the rest of her life, and she eventually died in 2005. But not all of the cases were dismal failures. About 70 to 80% of lobotomy patients were either able to leave or avoid long-term institutionalization. And although some of the patients ended up like poor Rose Kennedy and required long-term care, many others were able to resume a more or less normal life. Compared to the alternative treatment, which was nothing, perhaps not so bad. Freeman took particular delight when his former patients were able to marry and raise children. In one amazing case, a 28-year-old woman who had previously been crippled with debilitating obsessions and a phobia of shoes was able to return to university and completed her PhD in mathematics. Now, I'm not sure whether this tells us more about the benefits of lobotomy or about mathematicians, <laughs> but in any event, it's kind of impressive. But what about the ethics of all of this? Freeman had about as much patience for medical ethics as he did for Freudian psychoanalysis. He considered both of them to be useless forms of ivory tower intellectual dithering, while in the real world, the patients were suffering and he had the answer. In any event, Freeman gave his patients about as much informed consent as any doctor did back in those days. None. <laughs> be a good patient, doctor knows best, off we go. My favorite story about Freeman involves him being taken on a tour of a newly built hospital where he was to be the director of psychiatry. Having been denied his request for shatterproof, glasses, shatterproof glass in the windows on the ward, he calmly just removed his shoe and smashed several of the windows and then walked off. <laughs> the windows were then replaced with the shatterproof variety. This is the perfect metaphor for how he planned to tackle any opposition to what he thought was the right thing to do. Such hubris is potentially how the demonic myths began and where Freeman's story seems to go off the rails a little bit. So it's important to point out at this stage that lobotomy was firmly in the medical mainstream and tens of thousands of cases were being performed all over the world. The main problem, as Freeman saw it, was that the procedure was a major one. It was time consuming, it was expensive, you needed a neurosurgeon, an operating theater, an anesthetic, and a lengthy recovery time. What if you could achieve the same results in 10 minutes without all those unnecessary hassles like anesthetic and sterility? He was inspired by an, by an Italian neurologist, and in 1945, he picked up an ice pick in his kitchen and began practicing on grapefruits, then human cadavers. Freeman performed the first transorbital, or via the eye, lobotomy on a live patient in his own office in 1946. The patient took a taxi home with her husband a few hours after the procedure. This new lobotomy used a long, thin instrument called an orbitoclast, which, as the myth of Freeman evolved over time, was eventually transformed into the legend of the gold-plated ice pick. Now, this is pure fiction. But what was amazingly true was the procedure itself. So the transorbital lobotomy involved lifting up the upper eyelid and placing the point of this instrument under the middle of the eyelid and against the top of the eye socket. A mallet was then used to drive the orbitoclast 
through the thin layer of the bone at the roof of the eye socket, which also happens to be the floor of the anterior cranial fossa where the frontal lobes are. Five centimeters into the frontal lobes. The instrument was then pivoted around in a series of cuts designed to disconnect the frontal lobes from the deeper parts of the brain. The simplicity of this procedure led to Freeman performing it in his own office and local mental insti institutions, using electroconvulsive therapy as an anesthetic and usually without gloves or a mask, which is ironic because his grandfather was one of the first surgeons to introduce sterile technique into the United States. <laughs> Although he kind of figured, and not altogether incorrectly, that it is sterile up there. The procedure took seven minutes. Walk in, hopefully walk out, usually with two black eyes. Now, to me, this method seems like the neurosurgical equivalent of using a sledgehammer to repair a precision Swiss timepiece. But that's the error I continually fell into while researching this guy. It was judging the past by my own modern standards. Even James Watts, his neurosurgical partner, had to admit that in the right hands, like Freeman's, the transorbital procedure was actually safer and had a better outcome than the standard surgical lobotomy that they were performing. In fact, the first time that James Watts even knew what Freeman was doing was when he walked into their shared office and found Freeman mid-procedure with a patient on the table with an ice beak sticking out of their face. Freeman said, here, hold this so I can take a photo. <laughs> Watts just turned around and walked out of the office. Actually, Watts did start performing these lobotomies himself, but in hospital and under appropriate conditions. His main concern was that Freeman intended to take the procedure outside of the hospitals and teach it to people whom he considered did not possess the skills to perform it safely. So Watts ended their professional and personal relationship in 1947 and began criticizing Freeman and the transorbital lobotomy. Freeman was undeterred and he became so evangelical about this procedure that he began traveling around the USA in his own van to visit mental hospitals, promoting and teaching the transorbital lobotomy method, and sometimes lobotomizing up to 25 patients a day. Another part of the Freeman myth is that he named his van the Lobotomobile. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that this part of the story isn't actually true, but in any event, the van did not have Batman-style wings. It's estimated that he performed about three and a half thousand of these transorbital lobotomies in total, and he taught many, many others how to perform this procedure. Of course, there were some, some spectacular successes and some equally spectacular failures, but it was that really huge middle ground that really mattered to Freeman. And these were the patients who were previously thought of as hopeless cases, but who could now leave or stay out of the asylums and maybe have some kind of a semblance of a life. But it's here that where Freeman's story becomes the most troubling and controversial. I mean, what was the driving force behind this messianic zeal? Certainly he wasn't motivated by money, because he would only charge about $25 for the procedure, and sometimes even did them for free. Was it ego? Was he trying to live up to the reputation of his famous grandfather? I think he was just so bound up in the whole thing that he couldn't differentiate his own reputation and his own life from this procedure that he was promoting. He was definitely a showman and a self-promoter with more, of a more than a touch of the macabre and the carnival about him. He courted the mass media shamelessly and took a great delight in the shock value of the procedure. He loved it when people would faint when he was performing the procedure. And to show off, he could even perform both sides at once ambidextrously. 
But he didn't do himself or his causes many favours. For example, in 1951, he paused mid-procedure for a photo opportunity and the ice pick slipped too far into the patient's midbrain and they died on the table. His reputation also wasn't helped by the 1960s counterculture who saw lobotomy as a mere punishment for rebelliousness. However, many of his patients and their families didn't really see it like this. At a conference in the 60s, Freeman was being heckled by a bunch of psychiatrists. So he famously reached under the podium and pulled out a box full of about 500 Christmas cards that he'd received from patients and their grateful families. Now, why you bring a box full of Christmas cards to a conference, I don't understand. But he tipped out this box full of Christmas cards onto the floor and asked his critics, how many Christmas cards have you received from your patients? Of course, I'm not here to completely whitewash Freeman, and certainly there's many aspects of his story that are troubling, to say the least. Most disturbingly to me is the increasingly early stage of intervention and the decreasing threshold for performing what began as a salvage procedure of last resort. Freeman was constantly dogged by the very understandable controversy and outrage following lobotomies on children, one of them as young as four years old. So as much as that sickens me, it's worth remembering that these lobotomies on children were actually performed with James Watts using the formal neurosurgical method and not performed alone by Friedman, the crackpot with the ice pick. The introduction of chlorpromazine, which was the first antipsychotic drug available in 1954, was a truly revolutionary moment, and the number of patients in psychiatric institutions fell at a dramatic rate, but so too did the prestige of psychosurgery. But Freeman just couldn't let it go. More and more lobotomy was being seen in the public eye as a mutilation and not a therapy. And Freeman performed his last lobotomy in California in 1967. In fact, his second last patient died three days after the procedure and he was stripped of his license to operate. He spent the last years of his life driving around America in a camper van, continuing to visit and photograph many of his old patients as if desperately trying to find some kind of validation and convince himself and others that his life's work had been of benefit. He died in 1972. The controversy over Freeman has unfortunately tarnished the reputation of psychosurgery, which actually still has the potential to help many people. In the 90s, there was an ev even an unsuccessful petition for Monitz's Nobel Prize to be retracted. In any event, you could even argue that Monitz deserved the Nobel Prize even more for inventing cerebral angiography. Many people seem shocked by the very idea of neurosurgery being used to treat psychiatric illnesses. But why is this? If we view consciousness and personality as just one of the many biological functions of the brain, just the thing that the brain does, rather than as some kind of Cartesian-inspired divine spark, why shouldn't we surgically treat psychiatric diseases in the same way that we would treat for example, a malfunctioning heart valve. And if mental illness is a disease of neurotransmitters and chemicals in the brain, which it largely is, why shouldn't it be treated in the same manner as Parkinson's disease, which is another disease of neurotransmitters? In fact, psychosurgery has never totally gone away, but it's continued in a much modified, less drastic, and more appropriately, very highly regulated form. Deep brain stimulation is a procedure in which electrodes are inserted into the deep nuclei of the brain, millimeter by millimeter, and tiny electrical currents are applied with pinpoint accuracy. This is a common and very effective treatment for Parkinson's disease. But deep brain stimulation is also very effective in the treatment of Tourette's disease and obsessive compulsive disorder. 
Although results for the treatment of depression have been pretty disappointing, the research is continuing. And at the very least, deep brain stimulation is a much more appropriate way than lobotomy to treat the most complex object in the known universe. Nowadays, no one even wants to use the words psychosurgery, lobotomy, or Freeman mentioned in the same breath as what we now call functional neurosurgery. But in the 1930s, the general mood of psychiatry was overwhelmingly one of therapeutic nihilism. Walter Freeman understood very well that psychiatry is the management of despair, and his ghost continues to haunt medicine. Thanks.